welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deep values, the things that we try and stay loyal to as we navigate life, and particularly the deep values of those who have some kind of public voice or platform and who shape and form our common life. I'm really interested in their starting point, their ethical view of the world, if you will, and particularly how understanding these things might help us grow in empathy and curiosity and ability to live together in our very diverse communities. You can listen back to five years worth of interviews with public figures from all over the world, different professions, different politics, completely different perspectives. And my hope is that you will listen to people who affirm you in what you think and in your identity and in your beliefs, and also people who challenge you. But in so doing, you will begin to see uh, and understand what might be driving people who are not like yourself and who you disagree with. In this episode, I spoke to Tomowa Olade. Tomowa is a journalist and a writer, and his recent book, This Is Not America, was published in 2023. We had a really interesting conversation about his experiences growing up in Nigeria and then moving to South London, and what drove him to try and write with a bit more granularity and particularity about the Black British experience. There are some reflections from me at the end, as usual. In the meantime, I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Tom, we are going to kick off today with a uh, non-standard opening question. It's the morning. We're both of us still coming too, so it might feel a little bit, you know, hearts, minds, soul, spirit coming into gearing up for it. Um, I'm going to ask you what is sacred to you. And you can take that in any direction you like. You can make of it what you like. You can reject the premise of the question but it's really trying to get to your deep principles and values. What do you think is sacred to you? Um, The thing that I consider to be sacred is any sense of community, whether that community manifests itself in terms of family, in terms of religion, in terms of friendship groups, in terms of um, civic institutions within a city or a town, in terms of a football team. Um, Because what I consider to be sacred is something that takes you outside of your individual self. That's so interesting. Do you know, do you have a sense of why? Why that's sacred to you? Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think the reason why that's sacred to me is because um, I believe that we live in an increasingly atomized society. Um, and I think this explains why many of our Politics feels um, so divisive and so polarizing. Um, I think the reason why much of our politics feels divisive and polarizing, and by politics, I don't just mean politics in terms of conservative or Labour Party. I also mean politics in terms of some of the most contentious issues in our day. 
arguments around race and trans rights and um, feminism. Um, I think the reason why they're so polarizing and divisive is because um, there isn't enough space um, in society at the moment for people to find um, the sacred. Um, so um, many of our civic institutions are in decline. Um, religion as, a, as an organizing force in civil society is in decline. Um, there is family break breakdown. Um, friendships um, today are, um, are often uh, mediated through social media rather than grounded in um, reality. And I feel that because of that, um, people try to find um, what's sacred in things like their own individual identity rather than in um, grander civic institutions. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to that and how that kind of anti-individualism strain shows up in your politics. But for now, we're going to go, we're going to wind right back and try and get a sense of you um, at the beginning of your story. And I'd love to hear what were some... Um, big ideas present in your childhood, whether religious or political or philosophical, and they could have been explicit or implicit. What was in the air when young Tom was growing up? <laughs> so I, I was born in Nigeria um, and I moved to the UK when I was nine. Um, I come from... Maybe st let's start um, with that first chapter. Do you mind? The Nigerian nine years. Yeah, what sure. Was, paint me a word picture. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in um, a Christian family, um, Church of England, officially. But if you, um, if you grew up in a Church of England, um, West African family, there's always uh, an evangelical spice to it, an evangelical dimension to it. Um, the average Church of England um, and my Church of England, I mean like Anglican, the average Anglican West African church um, is um, very different to the average Anglican church in England. <laughs> uh, so there's always a slightly evangelical um, twang to it. Um, so the atmosphere um, in my childhood um, and even as a teenager was always um, necessarily one shaped by Christianity. Um, in terms of culture, I also consumed a lot of American action films. Um, and I watched a lot of um, wrestling, WWE or um, WWF, as it was known um, in the past as well. Um, so I consumed a lot of American culture um, and I guess that must have shaped my outlook and things as well. Yeah. But I also consumed a lot of British media as well, a lot of British culture. I um, was a big fan of the show Mr. Bean. Um, <laughs> I, I also I feel like he's the, the most uh, recognizable physical comedy in the world, right? It's just like yeah, the, exactly, the way Mr. Exactly. Bean traveled is extraordinary. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because you don't have to translate yeah, it. And, and <laughs> yeah, you don't need to translate it. It's like, yeah, and, and, and it has that universal appeal. Um, so I guess maybe the consistent theme across my being a child is that a lot of the culture that I consumed from um, the stories in the Bible to the action films of Arnold Schwarzenegger to the comedy of Mr. Bean were things that had a universal appeal. And may- maybe maybe that's in a strange way shaped the kind of um, ideas and the politics that I espouse, which is a kind of curiosity about, about other cultures, um, especially mm. Western cultures, uh, kind of universalism, maybe. Uh, a, an interest about, um... in... I wanted to hear a little bit about more about your family, about what your mum and dad sure. were like if they were both around. Do you have siblings? Was it big, small, yeah. noisy, quiet? Yeah. Uh, so I was the um, I, I was the youngest in my family, um, the fourth the fourth child, um, and I've got three older brothers, uh, no sisters. It's also making. I think a therapist would say that your obsession with wrestling and being a superhero. Makes a lot of sense as the fourth son. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, both both my parents were around. My my dad um, used to be um, a politician in Nigeria. Um, he's now retired. Um, and my mum used to um, basically um, buy and sell clothes, so she was a trader essentially in clothes. Um, and also other goods as well. Um, so the, the dynamic in my family was that I, I was the youngest. Um, and um, growing up as a child, um, I, I think um, I was the, the most shy as well um, out, of, out of all my family um, members. Um, and, and when I moved to the UK as well, um, I was also um, quite shy as well. Um, and I, I would still consider myself a shy person, even though other people might disagree. Um, and, and I think the reason why other people might disagree is because when I meet people, when I interact with people, I tend to ask them a lot of questions. Um, but that's, that's almost like a kind of, of defense mechanism to protect my shyness. What was that transition like when you moved what what made your mum and dad move and, and what was that emotional experience like maybe that first year settling into school a new place a new home mm. Mm. yeah um they decided to move um i think um to give me and my brothers um a better education basically um and um the process was smooth in some respects and a bit strange in other respects so it was smooth in in, in the respects of um English is the official language of Nigeria. Um, so I, I grew up um, speaking and understanding English as a child in Nigeria. Um, and also I consumed a lot of, as I said earlier, a lot of British and American popular culture. So um, in terms of culture, it wasn't that much of a shift. Um, I think the biggest shift that I noticed was in terms of education. Um, so in Nigerian schools um, at that time, even in primary schools, um, corporal punishment was still in use. Um, so kids used to be um, caned 
um, for any um, transgression that they um, that they did, basically, including me. I, I was caned a oh. few times as well. Um, so I, I found um, um, English British teachers far more um, lenient and far more generous <laughs> than their Nigerian counterparts. Um, I think another difference um, is that in Nigerian or, or more generally in, in West African, and I also think this is true in Asian culture as well, if you, um, if you see somebody that's um, an adult or um, a friend of your parents more specifically, you would either refer to them as Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. or uncle or auntie, even though they're not related to you. Whereas in the UK, if, you, if you're a child and you see an adult, you can call that adult by their first name. Um, so that was another interesting um, cultural dynamic that um, I, I found fascinating to navigate through. And um, you, were, you moved to South London immediately, is that right? To kind of Plumstead area? Yeah, so I, I grew up in, um, so I grew up in two parts of Southeast London. Um, I grew up in the Plumstead area, but I also grew up um, for some time in, in Eltham as well. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that's an interesting part of Southeast London because um, the Plumstead area in particular has a very large um, Black African population. Um, so in, in a sense, I, <laughs> even though I left Nigeria, in, in a sense, I, um, you, it's, you could argue, did I really leave Nigeria? If I grew up in Plumstead <laughs> and, and Woolwich um, and, and areas around there. Um, so there was, there was definitely a very large, um, when I, and even now, a very large Black African population. Um, but it, El- Eltham is a fascinating place because Eltham was where um, Stephen Lawrence was tragically murdered in um, 1993. Um, and Eltham historically has been... Um, um, a stronghold for the far right, um, interestingly enough. Um, and what makes this fascinating is, is that I didn't really know this until um, I was much older. So this is something I only knew in retrospect, um, the far right, um, white supremacist um, legacy of Eltham. Um, and what, what makes it also fascinating is that I went to school near Eltham as well. So I went to school in a place called Kidbrook, um, which is near um, Blackheath, for those of you that don't know, um, or near Greenwich. Um, and um, the school I went to was very ethnically diverse. Um, and I didn't really experience any kind of explicit racism um, when I was at that school, um, but just like a stone's throw away, um, was, is an area that has, um, a far right white supremacist legacy. So I, mm-hmm. I, I found that disjunction, disjunction in retrospect fascinating. It's interesting. And one of the things that comes up a lot in your book is the particularity of black people's narratives, right? How much we want to put, mm. And we don't just do this with race, we do this with everything. We want to have a kind of set of narrative tracks or narrative options and put people in them. 
And the way that immigrant experience is often narrated, particularly those who are moving from um, a black majority country or um, from a country that's less dominant in white people, as the UK is, um, that there's a sense of dislocation or a kind of painful coming to awareness of diff of of the immigrant's own different racial racial identity and a sense of alienation mm-hmm. um and i think that is how a lot of immigrants would narrate their coming to the uk yeah, yeah. um yeah from what i've read and what i can hear the experience was just quite straightforward for you is that right and if so why do you think that might have been yeah it is Um, I think there would have been a greater sense of dislocation or alienation if I came from, say, a Francophone country um, in Africa, or if I came, say, from um, um, a majority Muslim country in Africa or across the rest of the world. Nigeria is interesting because Nigeria is about 50% Muslim and 45% Christian. Um, so it's, it's almost 50-50. But if I came from, and I'm from the Christian side, so if I came from a majority Christian country um, and my family was, I mean a majority Muslim country and my family uh, was, was also Muslim as well, then I might feel that sense of cultural alienation or dislocation. Um, and I think it's also because um, I also come from um, quite a proud um, and quite a strong family community. Um, so I've never really felt any sense of confusion about my identity as well. So I think it's a mixture of all those different factors, which which meant that um, I didn't really have any sense of alienation or any desperate desire to um, find a, a different sort of identity w- when I moved to the UK. Um, mm. And I realise this is, uh, particularly for British people, quite a private question, but how much did and does your parents' Christianity continue to feature in your childhood and maybe in your life now? Um, it's, it's, it's still an ever-present feature. Um, and it's and it's something which is um, integral to um, the I, I think it's something which is integral to my identity um, because um, it's something which has definitely shaped my moral and cultural outlook um, and, and, and and the funny thing and this is the uh, strange irony of it is that Christianity was only introduced to um, West Africa um, from the middle of the 19th century onwards. Wow. Um, And I think that in terms of my own particular family, um, Christianity um, was only introduced um, by the late 19th century um, on my father's side and the early 20th century on my mother's side, possibly, possibly. it's it's a bit murky. I'm trying to trace the exact moment my um, family became Christian. Um, so in grand historical terms, it's very recent. 
but it nevertheless feels like an integral part of um, the identity of my family. Um, and um, and the, the reason why I've, I've, I find it funny is because um, when we're thinking of being a Christian and being British, uh, it's been an integral part of British identity uh, for um, over a thousand years, even for or like a thousand and, and more and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but in terms of my, my own identity um, and the identity of Black African people in the UK, it's only been um, a big part of the identity for a far shorter period of time. And the reason why I find it interesting and ironic is because, as I've written before, uh, Christianity amongst the white British population uh, is in decline um, in terms of considering yourself to be um, a Christian. Um, which, which I think is slightly different from actually going to church every week. Um, so I, I do think that there is a difference between identifying with Christianity um, and actually practicing it every, every single week and every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, but but um, and but but in terms of the the, the Black African um, population in the UK, it's still a massive part of the identity. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so it's funny that um, something that was essentially um, an imperial or colonial export is now being brought back to the metropole. So you were at a comprehensive yeah. school in Plumstead, very mixed, not um, not feeling a sense of alienation or dislocation. And then you're getting ready to go to university and a teacher suggests going to SOAS. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about that moment and why mm. it felt meaningful? Yeah, so um, when I was applying to go to university, um, this this was when I was um, 17 and I was thinking of applying to various universities. One of my teachers suggested I go to SOAS University in London. Um, and the reason why she said that um, is because she, um, she thought SOAS was great because SOAS has um, a legacy or a tradition of being welcoming to people of ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, And the reason why I responded in a negative way to that, um, so I responded in a negative and quite viscerally negative way to that suggestion because I found it to be completely patronizing. Um, I found it to be... um, to, to be something that reduced me to my identity and not to any sort of educational qualification that I have independent of my particular racial identity. Um, and this was at a time when I didn't really um, have the kind of, um, of arguments that I do now. I didn't really think about race um, in the same um, particular um, way that I do now. I wasn't really familiar with many of the thinkers of race that I am with now or many of the arguments and debates on those matters that I do now. But I felt that visceral response because 
um, I think as I as I intimated earlier, I come from um, quite a, a a proud family, um, and I, I'm always quite sensitive to anybody um, that I, I consider to be condescending or to be patronising to me, um, and I and I and I also have quite a strong sense of not always wanting to be viewed as um, just a black person and nothing else because I, I know that I'm more than that. And I think perhaps one of the reasons why I felt that is because I come from a country, um, I was born and raised in a country where over 99% of the population is black. Um, so in Nigeria, um, being black is not one of the main it's, it's not it's not like a social dividing line because everyone is black. The dividing lines within Nigerian society uh, are based on things like religion, um, ethnic tribal group, um, region in a country, um, politics, class, all those other various factors rather than race. Uh, so when I was um, growing up in Nigeria, race was not at the front of my mind as it would be if you were um, born in um, a majority white country and, and you're a black person. Um, so be, being black um, to me, um, even though of course I am a black person, it, it's not something, it's not the be all and end all of my identity. Um, and I felt that that woman was turning, turning it into that by suggesting I go to so as simply because um, I come from an ethnic minority um, group and, and mm. therefore I would benefit from that. I, I found that extremely um, patronizing and extremely um, something that was not consistent with how I saw myself, essentially. Yeah. And you ended up going to UCL, is that right? Um, right. So I went to Queen Mary, University of London for my yep. undergraduate degree. Then I went to UCL for a master's. Yes. And came to the realization that you wanted to be a writer. Given, given that you've said what you've said, what was there a temptation to not write about race? <laughs> what, what, what yes. has drawn you into this conversation where... It is both not central yes. to your sense of self, but something that you feel compelled to speak about. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that I've been ruminating on for quite a long while. Um, and I think the reason why um, I decided to write about it is because I found the conversation and the discourse about it um, so frustrating to, to witness um, and that I felt compelled to give my um, two cents on, on the topic. Um, so in the summer of 2020, Ironic example, American reference there, sorry. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, that was deliberate. That was deliberate, my part. <laughs> uh, um, in the summer of 2020, um, after the uh, murder of George Floyd, um, I found the conversation around race in the UK to be um, frustrating because I felt that these conversations did not reflect 
the complex realities of Black British people. Um, so, for example, I saw many well-meaning, progressive um, British activists using terms like BIPOC to refer to ethnic minority people in the UK. Now, BIPOC is an acronym that stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. Um, a term like that would make sense in America because, of course, America has discriminated against and oppressed its various indigenous um, Native American communities. But using a term like indigenous in a UK context is a bit strange, especially if you are a progressive activist. It's the kind of term that you would expect somebody like um, a member of the BNP, the British National Party, a far-right group to use, rather than a progressive uh, left-wing activist from UCL. Um, so that was the most, at that time, that was the most vivid illustration of something, uh, of a more wider phenomenon that I was observing, which was that all too often when we talk and when we think about race and racism in the UK, we do it through an American perspective. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I thought at the time, and I still do now, of course, that this is completely inconsistent with the actual complex experiences of Black British people. Um, so I would argue that the Black British population um, is very much um, an immigrant group. Um, if you are Black and British, um, the majority of Black and British people are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. Whereas in America, if you are a Black American, um, the overwhelming majority of Black Americans can trace their ancestry further back than the majority of white Americans. Um, and that's, that's funny. That, and that's because um, of the... Of that, that's because of the of immigration to America um, from Europe um, after the end of slavery, basically after the um, mid nineteenth century, um, and there has always been a substantial um, black minority in America. Um, it's now thirteen percent today, um, whereas in the UK the share of the British population that's black is 4%. Um, and um, 30 years ago, um, or, or maybe even 40 years ago, it was about 1%. Um, and there are so many cities and towns in America where the majority of the population is black. Um, so if you are in America and you live in one of those cities and towns, your black, your social circle essentially um, can be exclusively black, whereas in the UK, the um, city with the largest um, share of its population that's black is London, um, and it's about fourteen percent. Um, and in the UK, we don't have the legacy of segregation that America has. So in the UK, for example. 
interracial marriage has never been banned in, in the UK. Um, and um, black and ethnic minority people have never been barred from standing for electoral office or um, voting in elections. Um, black and ethnic minority men, I should, of course, emphasize. Thank you. Um, so that particular legacy of institutionalized um, segregation in America um, simply doesn't um, translate to a UK context. Mm. Yeah, it was really helpful reading um, just how big some of those differences are. Um, and the other thing that really mm. comes through is how much there is a real sense of distinctiveness about different um, different groups of black immigrants to the UK. And you really um, sure. highlight this difference between people who came here as part of the Windrush generation with a black Caribbean heritage, who obviously, similar to black Americans, mm. had ended up in the Caribbean because of slavery. Mm. And those more recent yeah. and bigger um, influx of black African immigrants directly from Africa, from mm. places like Nigeria, like you did, and Ghana and, and other places sure. more recently. Could you just spell out why you think that distinction is really important to hold in our minds when we're thinking about the Black British experience? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think many people, when they think of what it means to be Black and British, still... Um, think of it in terms of Black Caribbean people. Um, so many people still think that Black Caribbean people constitute the majority of the Black British population. Um, but that's not the case. The striking thing is, as of today, there are twice as many Black African um, people in the UK as there are Black Caribbean people. Um, 25 years ago, the majority of Black British people were Black Caribbean people. But over the past 25 years, there's been a massive influx of immigration from Africa, um, which has completely changed the demographic makeup of the Black British population. Um, in terms of the differences between Black Caribbean people and Black African people, I think looking at education um, is a fascinating and um, striking way to um, tease out the differences between these two groups. Um, so in terms of education, Black African pupils have um, a um, higher um, GCSE and A-level attainment rate than Black Caribbean pupils. Uh, Black African pupils tend to do better in terms of GCSEs and A-levels. Um, in terms of being um, excluded from schools um, as well. Um, Black Caribbean pupils are three times more likely to be permanently excluded um, from schools than Black African pupils. Um, and I think these differences are important um, if we genuinely care about the inequalities in our society. Because if we genuinely care about making our society more inclusive and more fair and more equal, 
we need to focus on the black communities that are actually struggling rather than making generalizations about what it, what it means to be black and British. Um, and I think this is important more generally when we talk about ethnic minority people in the UK. Um, so the ethnic minority groups that have the best GCSE and A-level results um, and also do the best when it comes to um, going to universities are British Indian um, pupils and British Chinese pupils as well. And they tend to do better um, than the white population, right? And yes, they do. They do. They tend to do yeah, quite a, quite a lot better than white population, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also, they also tend to do better than the white population in terms of things like um, the way that they um, interact with the criminal justice system. And by that, I mean that um, British Chinese people uh, are actually um, less likely to be um, stopped and searched, for example, than the white population. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that this is important because we have this particular paradigm in our minds of there, there, there is a group of white people in this country that are privileged and there's a group of ethnic minority people in this country that are not privileged, that suffer discrimination and oppression in terms of education, in terms of employment, in terms of their interaction with the criminal justice system. Mm. And this kind of paradigm is too simplistic because there are nuances within it. Um, so when people say ethnic minority people in the UK are struggling, I always ask them, which ethnic minority people because the experiences of British Indian people um, are very different to the experiences of British Pakistani people. Hmm. The experiences of British Nigerian and British Ghanaian people are very different to the experiences of British Jamaican people. Um, and I think seizing out these nuances is absolutely crucial because... Um, Race is not the only thing that defines inequality in our society. Um, race can shape inequality. I'm not denying that. Yeah. But inequality can also be shaped by other factors, such as class, such as geography, such as religion, such as the family background of a particular individual, um, such as the cultural environment in which they were raised. Mm -hmm. um, such as their own individual character as well. All these various factors um, can shape the circumstances um, and the particular experiences of an individual. And I think just defining somebody in terms of their race um, means that we can't have... Um, an accurate picture of inequality in our society. Um, and this is completely contrary to the central organizing mission of well-meaning progressive and liberal people, which is to improve the lives of disadvantaged people in our society. Mm. Well, you can't improve their lives if you just look at them through one dimension. Yeah. I'm going to have a go at summarizing what I think 
well, it's not your whole argument, but part of what your argument is, and I'd love you to correct me if I'm wrong, because I've been sort of sitting with this um, <laughs> uh, sort of summary in my head. And it's it's that it, it's essentially a kind of material argument. It's a, it, It's not that class trumps race, but that class mm. and race are much more mm. closely entwined than we think. And I, I, the way I was thinking about it in my head all the way through the book is, is the legacy of slavery, is the way that British Caribbean mm. people and black American people yeah. were forcibly removed yeah. from their land and their resources and then forcibly mm. restrained from yeah. building up capital for generations. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas more recent immigrants from Africa, but also from other countries, people of color from different, yeah. different, basically, essentially economic, hard economic and material circumstances in their yeah. pasts are coming from a completely yeah. different place. And that therefore, and you're very yeah, clear in true. your book that you're not arguing that racism doesn't exist. You're sometimes accused of kind of downplaying or denying racism. I didn't read that at all. Yeah. Your, yeah. your chapter on the Windrush yeah. scandal is ex extremely angry and rightly so about what has mm. happened to mm. black Caribbean immigrants, even in the last decade. You know, you're mm. saying racism exists, mm. yeah. but that much of the difficulties yeah. and the challenge that these most disadvantaged mm. black groups experience are the legacy of mm. racist structures from centuries ago, of the way colonial plays out and the way that slavery plays yeah. out. Yeah. And yes, there is still a kind of cultural sure. racism sure. in the air. People still have prejudices, but that mm. most of the race conversation is focusing on mm. those, on the language used now, on you mm. know diversity schemes. Yeah. When actually what needs to happen is a yeah, much more yeah. structural, actually, I want to ask you about reparations and what you yeah. think about them, but the way this plays out much more simply in your <laughs> argument is for something like publishing yeah. in the arts, don't yeah. do loads of, don't, don't loads of diversity schemes to try and get more people of color in your industries, pay them more because they yeah. don't have generational wealth. So they can't afford to be underpaid. Yeah, exactly. Pay people more, don't dress it up sure, as diversity. Exactly. That's a, that's not a very good summary of your argument, but that's yeah. that's what I've been taking from it. Is that fair? No, the last bit was actually a very good summary of part of my argument. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. Actually, that is a good summary. I think all of it is a good summary of my argument. It's 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 um, I I I I think that arguments about diversity and inclusion should be rooted more in material reality, um, and and we were right to point out the legacy, the particular legacy of slavery in terms of the Black Caribbean um, experience. Um, I think what I would also add as well to um, complement it um, is that um, it's, it's material, but it's also, in a sense, cultural as well, because um, um, Black Caribbean people, um, and this is also true of Black American people as well, of course, um, they, 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 were, they were not just... Um, expelled from their ancestral homelands and um, removed from any source of, of resources and economic capital, but they also had their language taken from them. They also had their sense of ethnic or 
um, tribal or communal affiliation mm. removed from them. That sacred value of community. Um, and so they, exactly, the value of community, exactly. Um, and, and, and yeah, they also had their cultural roots taken from them. Um, and so they needed to find other sources of culture. They needed to develop their own culture um, to almost compensate for this particular loss, for this particular lack. And that, 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 that particular historical experience simply doesn't um, translate to the um, Black African experience because when I was growing up, even when I was in the UK, my family still often spoke to me in the language of my ancestors. Um, I still have a um, West African, in particular, Yoruba name. Um, so that, that kind of cultural, uh, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about cultural dislocation and cultural alienation. Um, that's simply not the case for many Black African people in the UK. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a mixture of those factors, the material circumstances, and also the fact that, for example, and this goes back to what we were say, saying earlier about the um, experiences of Black Caribbean people in British education, the fact that, for example, when um, many of the Windrush generation came over in the 50s and 60s and sent their children to British schools um, and the racism that they experienced, that their children experienced in British schools, um, for instance, being consigned um, rather unfairly to special educational institutions, um, the experience of being um, told that they were loud or being rowdy or, or, or being uncivilized by British teachers, I think that did um, generate a level of mistrust between many Black Caribbean communities and the British educational establishment. Um, but Black African people simply don't have that historical experience in, in, in general. I'm speaking of generalities because most Black African people came over um, 25, 30 years ago to the UK. Yeah. I wanted to read you a little book, um, a little bit from your book where you're quoting from Ralph Ellison, um, who wrote a novel called Invisible Man. And he's, I believe, a Black American thinker. Um, but he, you... Yes. Yes. As I read it, I had this such a strong sense of is this is this speaking for you? Is this is what this is this is this sort of your voice? Ellison's unnamed narrator and protagonist <laughs> is invisible because his experiences are not viewed on yeah. their own terms. They're viewed through a narrow ideological perspective. White progressive liberals simply see him as a victim who needs to be rescued. Black nationalists only see him as a vehicle for righteous indignation against racism. Both of these groups are different, but they share one thing in common. They only see him for his race and nothing else. How much did you feel like the Invisible Man when you were reading that book? All of it. All of it is me, basically. Um, and, and I think that's the reason why that particular novel resonated so much with me, is because e even though, of course, it's, it's a Black American experience rather than a Black British experience, um, it resonated with me so vividly because um, I feel that way as well. I feel that different groups and communities only see me for my 
race and not for my complex individuality, um, other aspects of my identity, which are not reducible to my racial background. Um, and I think what was most striking about reading that novel is the emphasis on humanity, so a kind of humanism, which, which I feel has been lost in a lot of discussions about diversity, um, inclusion, equality. I, I feel that that sense of a kind of universal humanity, a, a sense of common humanity that transcends all these categories, I feel that's been lost. Mm. Um, and reading that um, novel, um, I, I felt a great kinship with the unnamed narrator of that novel, the protagonist of that novel, because I too feel that my sense of humanity has been obscured by um, emphasizing my racial background to the exclusion of other aspects of my identity. Mm. And you've published this book and in classic fashion, I kind of noticed some of the noise around the book, some positive and some negative, and then read the book and was I'm always <laughs> astonished by how something could be can be made to sound massively less nuanced than it is. It's a very careful, quite stats, stats heavy, extremely nuanced yeah. book. Um, yeah. yeah. How, and as I said, it seems to me that your argument is racism exists. Racism is bad. It plays out in different places in different ways. And I haven't experienced mm. a lot of it. So mm. I'd rather not mm. have all of the anti-racism stuff focused at me. <laughs> like, let's give it, the, let's, let's, mm. let's help the people mm. who need help. Um, but that has, yeah. that's a controversial yeah. thing to say in our current febrile debates around yeah. race. Of course. Why yeah. is complexifying the narrative, why do you think that people don't like it when you complexify the narrative? And what has the experience been of several black thinkers really taking issue with what you're saying? <laughs> um, so I think the reason why people don't want to make the narrative more complex is because they think when we are trying to uh, advance a social justice cause, we need to do it with great simplicity. Um, when we are trying to uh, argue something uh, on the street, uh, we need to simplify, simplify, simplify. Um, and because... Because I, I think, I think they they associate um, trying to make things more complex with a kind of distance and a kind of alien um, academia, like as, as if somebody's been in a sort of ivory tower. Whereas on the streets, we need to keep things as simple and as straightforward as possible. Because um, that's how we motivate change. And even though my arguments of Exactly, exactly. That's how we make genuine change, by, sim by simple rhetoric, essentially. Um, but e even, even, even though um, you rightly say that my arguments are very, uh, or, or try to be very complex and, and very nuanced and so forth, um, I also think I, I, I also try to write in a, in, in a, in a, in a sort of simple, <laughs> not, maybe not simple, that's the wrong word, but in a clear, in, in a clear way. 
as, as, as much as I can in a clear and lucid way. Um, and I, and I, but, but, I, but I also think that many people, um, many black thinkers have um, issue with my arguments and my points of view um, because they, they, they think that racial solidarity should trump everything, basically. Mm. Um, that all these arguments about the differences between black Africans and black Caribbean people or the differences between black middle class and black working class people, all of this is irrelevant at the end of the day because of the overwhelming force of white supremacy, mm. basically. Um, and on the basis of that, we should emphasize the importance of racial solidarity. Um, but, but, I, but I think this is a problem because um, black people that live in Africa, for example, as I intimated earlier, uh, we shouldn't assume that they would necessarily share the same kind of progressive views on race and on, and on equality as uh, many um, black um, activist people in the um, Western diaspora would, um, because there are many black people in Africa that might be conservative. Mm. They might be uh, more focused on other things apart from race. And we should not necessarily assume that they share the same views and the same assumptions simply on the basis of the fact that they are black. Mm. Um, and related to this as well is that it's possible to express solidarity with somebody on the basis of shared values and shared principles rather than on the basis of a shared racial identity. Um, so a white British person might feel a sense of kinship with um, the struggles of Black American people, for example. And that white British person might feel that kinship because that white British person has a particular set of values and principles um, which um, explains why they have that shared kinship in the first place. Mm. Uh, principles such as um, anti-racism, um, anti-economic um, inequality, maybe anti-capitalism. All these values and principles might shape the way that they um, express solidarity. Mm. And that's solidarity which transcends race. So, so I would say that um, I can understand why, why, why there is a kind of emphasis on racial solidarity, but we shouldn't necessarily assume that because black people are humans and humans are complex by their very nature um, and diverse in terms of their preferences and their characteristics as well. Um, and the, um, the sort of, as a complement to that, um, solidarity, I think, can be more powerfully expressed through shared values and principles. Um, and just to go back to what many of, the, many of my detractors um, have been saying about my book, is uh, 
Did you read that review by um, Kendi Andrews? Yeah, which made a lot more sense once I got to the part in your book where you take a pop at him. And I was like, okay, there's just beef here. So some people um, have argued that I'm a kind of um, a source of race traitor, essentially, that I'm a traitor to the cause. And and I always find this sort of argument um, rather rather amusing because, um, and and this goes back again to um, me being a child. So I think another thing which which I don't think I've emphasised in this interview is uh, even though I, I emphasize the importance of community and belonging, um, I've always been also as well, this, this is a strange paradox about me, I've, I've always been a bit... Um, Contrarian? Resistant to being, a part, to being part of a tribe. <laughs> Sorry, I've always been resistant to being part of a tribe. Yeah. Um, to being part of one single tribe. Um, I've always found that claustrophobic to be sort of consigned to one particular. So when I was at school, for example, um, at school, like loads of people were in like different cliques and different friendship groups. I was one of those kids that was in different friendship groups, was in different cliques. I was friendly with um, the kids of school that were interested in football and sport, but I was also friendly with the kids that were more academically orientated as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was always, I've always been, and and, I've always, and this is something that's carried on to me being an adult as well. I, I don't belong to one particular friendship group as well as an adult. Um, so the idea of belonging to the tribe of Black British people or, or the tribe of Black British academic people, I've, I've always, I'm, I'm always very resistant to. Um, there, there is, yeah, there is something because... Um, and, and it's striking because I'm, I'm quite um, I'm quite an agreeable person. Um, I, I think um, I, I, I don't really I, I don't enjoy um, arguments and disputation mm-hmm. and verbal fisticuffs. Um, but there is, um, and this is a phrase that was used by the um, by the 19th century American writer. There's a bit of the um, imp of the perverse in me, um, which is um, there's a kind of subversive um, sensibility within me, which which always resists any kind of tribal affiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I I, I found I, I find all these allegations of being like a sort of race traitor um, amusing more than anything else. Tomia Owalade, thank you so much for speaking to me on the sacred. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. So much to chew on after talking to Tom and um, perhaps starting with the bookends really, the beginning and the end of the conversation where he said the sacred value is community, that it is something beyond the individual. And this is a real dividing line. You can kind of tell someone who is not explicitly or straightforwardly a liberal, uh, someone who's kind of has a political temperamental lean towards liberalism would almost never say to me, would almost never challenge the premise of the sacred as an individual thing. It is inherently for them a collective or a communal thing. I think it is, um, yeah, it, it, 
guests challenging challenge me on that repeatedly. And I really love, I love the different directions that people can take that question. He's a community at the beginning, a sense of belonging, uh, the a pushing back against an individualism and atomization. And at the end, he so helpfully kind of, uh, laughingly reflected that there's two pulls in him. One is to community and communalism. And then the other is this slightly more, um, uh, allergy to getting swept up in things, to homogeneity, uh, maybe, uh, some days tendencies to, to kind of controversial, to be a controversialist, to, to take the minority opinion, um, and how those two things live within him. And it's just so helpful, I think, to complexify and to name, how complex we are as individuals, how we can have slightly different values, temperaments, tendencies, even on different days ourselves. I think that's the theme of this interview with with Tom is just that many things can be true at the same time. And it's really left me with this sense of how much I want a simple story, how much I want, in literary theory, it's called synecdoche, I've never said that out loud. I think it's said synecdoche, synecdoche it's written, um, which means the part standing for the whole. And I think we really want that. We really want to be able to listen to one person's story and go, okay, I understand the experience of X. Um, To not have to do the thing that Cole Arthur Riley uh, challenged us with in an earlier interview, which is, unapologetic and rigorous particularity to listen to people's stories you know and we can't possibly listen to each to each one right we can't possibly treat each person with the same level of attention Uh, but we can realize how much our cognitive shortcuts can trip us up when we when we go and I feel it in myself I'm like but I just want to understand race it's just a ridiculous thing to have a think. Or, you know, in lots of areas, you know, I want to be an informed person, an informed citizen. I'm going to read a few books about this topic. I'm going to listen to a few podcasts about this topic. And then I want to feel like I've got it, you know, like I understand it. Like I can, I can narrate the experience of black British people or the experience of trans people, or I can understand the climate crisis or whatever it is. And this podcast again and again, just like whacks me in the face with the futility of that, but also the unavoidability of that because no one has um, infinite time, attention or capacity um, to issues. And I think we probably need to just decide which things, areas, issues we're going to go deep with, but make sure in the ones we just haven't got that ram for, we're not assuming that we understand when we've only dipped our toe in. So yeah, the you know, Tom's childhood being able to say, yes, I grew up where Stephen Lawrence was killed and I didn't experience explicit racism in my childhood. Being able to say, yes, racism exists. It's bad and we need to fight against it. And it doesn't show up in the same way for different people. And a level of granularity is helpful. And I think it was it was such a key point that, you know, he is accused of being a traitor or um, you know, these, these, these kind of words that are used against people of color, like coconut and, you know, brown on the outside, white on the inside, those, those names that he's been called and others get called. 
for trying to say, this is not my experience. My experience is different. I remember it when Me Too came, uh, kind of hit us in the face and this sense of like, whose part gets to stand for the whole? Whose individual particular story do we let become representative in the public mind? And for a lot of older feminists, I think, or women who hadn't experienced sexual violence, there was this sense in which there was this realization of, okay, because I haven't experienced these things doesn't mean they didn't happen. But then I think for those that they had happened to, I don't, I don't really, I can't really follow through my point in that, but just this, this sense in which the we're continually wanting to work out who is representative, right? Whose story can we file under that's, that's what it's like to be X. Um, and if it, Tom's left me with anything, it's, it's the resistance to that. Um, yeah. And how, how we need to navigate that in ourselves and others. I find it when I'm telling my story of, I'm writing about this at the moment, I'm trying to write about um, the Christian sexual ethic and my experience of it having been broadly positive. But I'm having to be, and rightly so, so careful to not sound like I'm saying my story invalidates the stories of others whose experience is different. And that instinct in us to feel delegitimized or denied by someone else's different story, I think trips us up a huge amount. It was really interesting what he said about the Christianity basically being a colonial export, which is being exported back in. And he's right. Uh, London, something else research showed is the most religious place in the UK. And it's um, largely because of this very vibrant um, immigrant religious communities. Him saying, I think, so trying to get my head around Tom and what's formed him and why he feels this distinctiveness or difference or kind of um, divergence from the from some of the stories that are told about uh, black people in the UK. And I think a really key was this sense that he said, like, growing up in Nigeria, he wasn't black. He was just a person. I don't think he put it like that. But it wasn't that he wasn't black, it's that everyone was black and therefore it wasn't a salient fact about his identity. It wasn't in a thing that other people were using, didn't come with associations. It was just what people looked like. And then being thrust into a society in which his blackness was, in the eyes of other people, extremely salient to his identity, I think is part of what's been going on for him. And it makes me think about how those of us who are Caucasian as this language has changed and awareness has changed over the last few years, I know a lot of people who find talk of whiteness quite difficult to sit with and can feel kind of triggered into a defensiveness. And I'm sure there are situations in which it's being used in ways in which that reaction is, is, is perhaps justified. But I wonder if part of what's going on is that those of us who grew up in white majority places and are white, it wasn't a salient aspect of our identity. It was it just it just isn't isn't part of our self-conception. And so when someone else comes along and says, you know, this is really salient to your identity, this is key to how I see you, maybe we're experiencing um something not dissimilar to the journey that Tom has gone on. 
And I think the thing will maybe stay with me the most was just a sense of like material reality around race. And I wish I'd kept hold of the thread of my thought and said, what do you think about reparations? Because uh, I think in reading his argument, I came to a stronger sense of the strength of the argument for reparations. That if what you're seeing in the difference between a, a directly immigrated a kind of West African Black British population and a Caribbean Black British population. If Tom is right and his data is right and their experience is so different and the kind of markers around poverty and social exclusion and school attainment are so different, some of it will be culture, I'm sure, and some of it will be when those populations arrived and the level of hostility that they experienced. But you've just got to go slavery begins to loom extremely large as a, one of the hypotheses for that difference, that that level of uprooting, both in terms of economic outcomes and in the way that forms people. I talked to Vanessa Zoltan about kind of generational trauma and epigenetics um, and the way, you know, the, to the third generation of Holocaust survivors, the children of Holocaust survivors to the third generation have much higher levels of depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, possibly a tangent, but it works out in very simple ways in Tom's argument sometimes where he's like, yeah, don't start a big diversity agenda in publishing, just pay people properly. And that feels very sane um, to me. Yeah, this interview has just left me with this commitment to the bit of my brain that wants things to be simple needs to be kept an eye on and that surrendering to the mystery and complexity and in Cole Arthur Riley's phrase the sort of unapologetic particularity of each human person in front of me that's the posture that I want to adopt and I think um, Tom is inviting us into that thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Sacred Podcast my name is Elizabeth Oldfield uh, the podcast is a project of the Think Tank Theos. You can find all about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk. Our production team are Dan Turner and Fiona Howarth. We're edited by Drew Hawley and our music is by Luke Stanley with lyrics by Lizzie Harvey. I really hope that you'll uh, share the episode. Let us know what you thought. Leave a review. They really do um, warm my heart. Some There's been some really helpful feedback in some of the reviews that we've taken on board. Um, I love chatting to you. I love hearing from you. I think you're the most extraordinary group of people. So please do be in touch. Until next time. Mm-hmm.